I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. A couple of years ago, there was a box office smash hit. I'm sure you'll remember hearing about it, if you didn't see it. Arrival, the name of this movie. And it dealt with human encounters with aliens. Something about aliens, visitors from another planet. Something about them's really grabbed our collective imagination, holds onto it tenaciously. I actually don't see a a ton of films, but I did see this one. And I'm going to give a half spoiler here, so turn down your radio for 15 seconds if you don't want this movie half spoiled for you. Oh, no, it's been out long enough. This isn't going to matter by now. But still, I want to be nice. Here goes. As it happens in the film, the aliens in Arrival turn out to be benign, even friendly, anxious to help and be helped. But at first, they are grossly misunderstood and attacked by us fearful, maybe even us paranoid humans. These aliens are designed for this movie to look, well, completely alien. Uh, Not the kind of aliens that we're accustomed to, the little green men with cute eyes. Nothing human about their shape. The aliens of Arrival are, in fact, modeled after cephalopods. What are cephalopods? That's the group of living animals here on Earth that include squid and octopuses. And um, maybe it's safe to say that cephalopods, the kind we know from our oceans, not from the movie, but maybe they're they're just about as alien a, a life form as we can even imagine. As it turns out, though, if we're going to call them alien... Well, you have to think about how are they like us? How are they not? Are they more like us than not? Are they close to being like us at all? Or are they completely different? Well, it turns out they are incredibly intelligent creatures with complex emotions. Yes, moods, emotions, personalities. And perhaps most surprising, it has now been proven that they have an affinity for friendship across species with humans. They can, you can have, you can be a friend to an octopus, or they could be a friend to you, or, or they could sense, they could sense friendship from you. Imagine that. I'd never thought of such a thing. On Constant Wonder in this segment, our guest is an octopus lover. She spent years literally soaking in the world of the octopus, and she's author of a book, The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonders of Consciousness. If an octopus has a soul, uh, I never really knew that before, Uh, although I suppose it depends on what you mean by the word soul, and it depends on what you mean by consciousness. We're going to learn all about it with Cy Montgomery, author of that book. Cy Montgomery's on the line with us. Welcome to our program. I'm delighted to be on. Thank you. I just have to get this little thing out of the way, a little bit of business. I was a Latin major. And I had always thought octopus was a Latin word, but it's not. And the plural is really octopuses, correct? It's true. Yeah. So done. We've got that taken care of. <laughs> now we'll get into the good stuff here. Uh, one of the most interesting things that, that I have stumbled into so far in getting to know about you and your work has to do with the color, the pigmentation of uh, the octopus. Can we start right there? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they they can change shape and they can change color. They cannot just change from, you know, red to blue, but they can match their background exactly. They can form different patterns on their skin, and they can choose not just to blend in with their background, but if they want to, they can look like some other thing. So they can become invisible or they can turn into a poisonous flatfish or a bunch of sea snakes or some other thing, depending on what the predator that's chasing them needs to believe or what they want to perpetrate upon their own prey. How did you learn this? Have you seen this? I have seen it. It is amazing to watch octopuses just suddenly change into something else in front of your eyes. And I've seen this in the wild, I've seen it in captivity, and I've seen it in multiple species. But one of the most moving incidents that I witnessed was my very first encounter with an octopus. And this was at the New England Aquarium. I had my hands in the tank. I was petting an octopus whose name was Athena. 
And at first, she'd been bright red with excitement, and she'd come over to let me touch her and to taste me with her arms and her suckers. And after I'd been stroking her head for a long time, she turned white beneath my touch, and I later discovered that white is the color of a relaxed octopus. Now, why would you have put your hand in that tank in the first place? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? It's so funny. I didn't even have to really think about it. I, I wanted to meet an octopus. I wanted to look in the eyes of an octopus and see if there could be a meeting of the minds. And so I had asked, could I go behind the scenes at the New England Aquarium? At this point, I was thinking of doing a magazine article, which later grew into an entire book. And when the aquarist opened up the lid to the tank, all octopus tanks have to have a lid because otherwise they will get out and they will like do stuff. <laughs> They'll get into other animals' tanks and eat them and slither throughout your exhibits. Anyway, so he, he opened up the tank and I saw this creature turn bright red with excitement. Her eye swiveled in its socket, locked onto my face, and she came over to meet me. She slid from her lair specifically to come and meet me. And I saw her arms with their white suckers bubbling up from the depths of the tank, reaching toward me. And of course, I asked if it was okay, may I touch her? But my impulse immediately was to plunge my hands and arms into the tank and reach out to her just like she was reaching out to me. Well, you know, you're a brave woman, and I just want to give you credit for that because whenever I think about an octopus, I think about two things primarily. The suckers, the idea that they're going to latch onto you and not let you go, and then you're stuck. And and then I've seen pictures of their mouths, and there's kind of this beak-like structure And had you not been apprised of suckers and the beak? Well, I did know about the beak. But fortunately, their mouths, unlike ours, are located in their armpits. So you can interact with an octopus and not be near their mouth if you're just watching where your hands are. And as you know, the beak, you know, like like anybody's beak, a beak can bite you. But what you have to worry about, too, is that all octopuses have venom. Um, The venom of the giant Pacific octopus is not terribly toxic. It won't kill you. And the animal can choose whether to envenomate you or not. But it's not something that you you want to risk. So it's pretty easy with a large octopus whose arms may be four feet long. You know, you can stay pretty far away from the beak. Now, the suckers, that is a very good point in that the suckers on a giant Pacific, a big male can have a three and a half inch diameter sucker, which alone one single sucker can lift 30 pounds. So this is a very strong animal with 200 of these suckers on each of the eight arms. And feeling the suckers on my arm, I I was also aware that not only was she taste, she's not only touching me, but she's also tasting me. Um, I was aware that I was going to have some explaining to do when I got home to my husband because I was going to have all, all these hickeys all over my arms to explain. <laughs> but the fact that it was, you know, a cephalopod, I'm sure he wasn't jealous. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they could, you know, just, just like your dog or your cat or even your parakeet, I mean, they, they, could, they could draw blood. They could hurt you if they wanted, but they're, they're not going to. They're, they're really not going to. And if you go into the relationship the same way you would with anybody else, including a, a person who could certainly hurt you if, if they wanted to, um, you're, you're, you're not asking for trouble. You're just asking to make friends. And that's how I began my relationship with every octopus I ever met. Well, I have learned from you that it hasn't been many years ago, just about maybe 15, 20 years ago now, that aquarium keepers just thought of them the way I do. They're very dangerous, and we've got to avoid contact and keep them at a distance and be cautious. Right. And part of that, too, was kind of a a um, style, um, a fashion in Aquaria to, to keep everything as naturalistic as, as possible. And, and it was believed that humans were not really part of the natural world. Well, as we know, humans are part of the natural world. And the thing about octopuses is they're so intelligent, 
that they will get bored. And anyone who's ever been bored knows how annoying that is. And you don't want to have a smart creature being bored. And so my dear friend, Wilson Menashe, who was a volunteer at the aquarium for a long, long time, he and a friend of his who was also a volunteer kind of got the idea that this animal's bored. Let's do something fun with them. And he started to play with the octopuses, and they liked it, and Wilson liked it. And now every octopus has um, a, a whole series of of toys to play with in most aquariums. There's even um, a, a manual on how to keep your octopus occupied. They love to play with toys like Mr. Potato Head. They love to play with Legos, the same kind of toys our children like to play with. They love taking things apart, and they will sometimes put them back together. And, you know, just like a person, they've got to have something interesting to do all day. So here's a question that's a very complex one. Uh, Would we identify with animals? We tend to identify with the cute things that look a little bit more like us. If it's going to be a koala bear, at least the creature, I don't have that much fur, but at least, you know, two arms, two legs, two ears, you know, I'm symmetrical down the middle. And, and, and so there's that anthropomorphic kind of sense of, well, you know, you could almost make a, a toy out of it that would look cute and like us. Right. You can't do that with an octopus. And so I'm wondering, as you talk about the playful nature how can you even tell? I could tell if a koala is being playful. I couldn't tell if an octopus, I don't think. Oh, I think you could. I, I wish you would come out and meet some of our octopuses at the New England Aquarium. So if you're ever out here, please do come. But, yeah, play is one of those things that is is pretty easy to recognize because it resembles exactly what we do. At the Seattle Aquarium, there was an octopus that basically was bouncing a basketball. Um, she, she would, didn't have a ball, but what she was using was a uh, floating pill container, and she was using her siphon to jet it into the water that was circulating in her aquarium so that it would loop around and come back to her. It was just like bouncing a basketball against the wall when you're playing. And you can, you can feel when, when somebody is, is having a good time, and you can feel when somebody is happy. I know what you mean about not knowing before you do it that you'll be able to feel it. Because with mammals, you can usually tell if an animal is annoyed with you or if an animal is happy to see you. And I wasn't sure that I'd be able to tell with somebody so distant and different from us as an octopus. But I could, and I bet you would too. Well, that's the thing with a dog, you know. You can tell if the dog smiles or is just before a growl, the corners of the dog's mouth will drop down. I never want to see a frowning or a smiling mouth of an octopus, and it's hard to see. <laughs> it's not near those eyes. It's just Yeah, a- yeah. It, it doesn't look like a mouth at all. And their whole body is different. I mean, we go head, body, arms, you know, I mean, head, body, limbs, and they go body, head, limbs. The part that we think of is the octopus's head in, in children's drawings have like a smiley mouth and eyes on it. That's not even their head. That's essentially their thorax or their, or their chest or their abdomen. Um, so, yeah, they, they are really, really different from us. Well, it's like their limbs are sprouting out the top of their head. In yeah, a way, right. if it's they're upside very, down. very yeah. odd. I mean, yeah. but the good thing is you can tell where their eyes are, and their eyes look very much like our own, and they function like our own, but with one important difference, and that is, to my amazement, they don't have color vision in their eyes, and yet they can turn color and pattern to look like anything in their surroundings. Where's so their Where's their brain? Oh, their brain is wrapped around their throat in a ring with something like, depending on the species and how you count it, 50 to 75 different lobes. It doesn't even look like a brain or a brain that we know. Yeah, I had always thought that the brain was up in that baggy, floppy thing that you're now calling the thorax. Right, right. That thing, which is actually the the technical name for it, is the mantle. And the mantle, what it has in it is the lungs and the excretory and reproductive organs and all that kind of stuff. 
and the and the digestive organs. Um, it it they just are not arranged in the same way we are. It really, you know, earlier when you were talking about meeting an alien, I think meeting an octopus is as as close as you can come outside of space travel or science fiction to meeting an alien. And that's part of what makes it so transforming to have a friend like that. But an alien with a soul, if I'm going to trust the title of your book, and speaking of your book, I think you have a copy there with you. Uh, You have often described some rather surreal experiences that kind of feel a little bit zen-like when you're interacting with octopuses. I wonder if on on page 90, if you could... uh, Share a little of what you put down there, and this this encounter with the soul of an octopus. It's it's you've done tremendous work. Do you have that at your fingertips? I do. I do have page ninety. Um, I'll start at the top if you'd like. Zip ahead. Who would who would know more about the infinite eternal ocean than the octopus? And what could be more deeply calming than being cradled in its arms, surrounded by the water from which life itself arose? As Wilson and I pet Kali's soft head on the summer afternoon, I think of Paul the Apostle's letter to the Philippians about the power of the peace that passeth understanding. And then, splash, we were hosed. Kali's funnel, less than half an inch in diameter, manages to hit us both at once, soaking our faces, our hair, our shirts, and our pants with 47-degree Fahrenheit salt water. Why? I sputter. Is she mad at us? That was not aggression, says Wilson. We both lean over the barrel and see that she's sunk to the bottom from where she looks up at us innocently. That was playful, he says. Remember, they're all individuals. We put our hands right back in. But she doesn't attach her suckers right away. Instead, she points her funnel at us like a kid aiming a squirt gun. I'm not fast enough to dodge it, but I can't help watching to see what she does next. She rises so that her head now lies just beneath the surface, and I see the water swelling from the pressure of her siphon. Clearly, she can modulate the flow with great precision. She can also move the funnel with astounding flexibility. I'd assumed the organ, though supple, was firmly attached to just one side of her head. But Kali shows us clearly that it's not. At one moment, her funnel is on the left side. The next, she swung it 180 degrees to her right. It's as surprising as if you saw a person stick his tongue out his mouth and next out his ear. <laughs> and then out his other ear. This is this is just fascinating reportage of of the details, and here's what I zeroed in on: the idea that they are each individuals, that they have separate personalities. Oh, they certainly do. Give me examples and, of that. Well, the folks at Aquaria um, typically name their octopuses. They don't name every animal in in their collection, but they name their octopuses. And um, at Seattle Aquarium, there was one octopus who was so shy. They named her Emily Dickinson because she never came out from in back of the filter. But then there was another one who was so grabby that they named him, oh gosh, it was uh, Larry. It was Leisure Suit Larry. <laughs> Do you remember Leisure Suit in the 70s? Yes. Anyway, that was hilarious because Leisure Suit Larry, his arms were all over you. And then there was another one they named Lucretia McEvil because she loved to dismantle everything in her tank. And you'd come in in the morning to the aquarium and look at her exhibit, and it was just a mess, and you had to redo the whole thing. And she'd be fine all day, and then you'd come in the next day, and in the night she just dismantled everything. They are really, really distinctive animals, and they have different feelings about different people, too. Some people they like right away. Other people they, for some reason, dislike. And they show their liking and disliking in different ways. But those people that they dislike, they move away from, obviously. And sometimes when they dislike you, they'll shoot you in the face with water. Other times they'll shoot you in the face with water to play with you, just like, you know, a, a 
a little boy might in, in a swimming pool splash you with water when he wants to play. Oh, no, you're just spinning this to your own advantage because you want to be someone who was liked by the octopus. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, they get away from you if they don't like you. I mean, that's very, that is very clear. And I didn't know that each one of these octopuses would, in fact, like me. I, I think, though, that because they can taste with all of their skin, they're like one big tongue, but their their sense of taste is most exquisitely developed in the suckers. I think that they may be able, when they're touching us, to taste our emotions and to experience if we're afraid of them or if we think they're they're ugly or if if we feel in a good way towards them. Uh, it's it's said that dogs are, are able to do that. Sometimes dogs will just dislike someone right away, and then you find out, oh, my gosh, that's a person who really hates dogs, and that's why the dog is barking at them. I, I think it would behoove animals to be able to figure that kind of thing out, and I wouldn't be surprised if octopuses do know right away. Here's a, a happy, confident person who's wanting to to greet me versus here's a a fearful or angry person. Or it could be, too, that in some cases there might be something on your hands that just tastes icky and they don't want to have anything to do with you for that reason. Yeah, they would taste me and say neither friend nor foe. They just go straight to fumbling idiot and uh, they would uh, have me pegged right there. Uh, We are visiting with Cy Montgomery. She is the author of The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonders of Consciousness. We're going to come back and learn about an animal, an octopus named Octavia after this short break here on Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. With us on the line is Cy Montgomery, excuse me, Montgomery, author of The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonders of Consciousness. Cy, a a couple of animals uh, you were acquainted with and also know about their passing, their their deaths, Uh, Kali and I think you've already mentioned, and Octavia. Somewhere in the stories of these two animals, you demonstrate that they know people, they can recognize people, they can differentiate, they can remember people. Tell us about that. Well, this has actually been proven by scientific experiments with identically dressed volunteers that shows that octopuses recognize and remember individuals. Um, it's, it's my experience, but it's also something that we know scientifically because this was done at Seattle Aquarium with uh, volunteers that would always give the octopus a delicious fish and then other identically dressed volunteers would touch the octopus with a bristly stick. And if you left your stick at home and left your fish behind, the octopuses who had gotten a, a fish from that person would go towards that person and reach up to greet them. And those who'd been touched by the bristly stick, when they saw that person, they they shot away to the opposite end of the tank, sometimes first blasting the person in the face with freezing cold salt water <laughs> to send yeah. them away, too. But with with the octopuses that, that I knew, um, when I'd been away for a while, uh, what was very striking was we we were so eager to be together again. One time I was away for, oh, I forget what it was, it was a book tour or some, something like that. But I'd been away for several weeks. I used to come in every week. And uh, when I got together with Octavia, we just flew into each other's arms and just held on to each other. It was so strikingly like meeting your husband at the airport when you've been gone. <laughs> um, we, we just could not wait to be together. And... If, if I could have been reading a bubble above her head, with, with every touch, she was saying, oh, it's you, it's you, it's you. This stuff is so familiar from mammals who I know. And there it was in an octopus. Yeah, I just can hardly comprehend that. I can't, in my mind, without having that experience, and it would have to be repeat experiences, lots of experiences with an animal, I can't even imagine developing a relationship. Would you say that with Octavia, you had a relationship? Oh, yeah. And 
it was beyond what I had expected. I, I, I didn't, I, I went into this not knowing at all what it was going to be like. I, it, it, it was just one wonder after another. And you know what was interesting, too, was that my friend Wilson, who's an engineer um, and an inventor, and he's, he's not somebody who's ascribing to all kinds of oovy, groovy feelings like, oh, this animal loves me and is trying to transmit a message. He was floored, too, and he'd been working with these animals for a long, long time. The difference was we had some pretty dramatic events happen at the aquarium, and one of them was when Octavia laid eggs, and what happened at the very end of her life after she had laid her eggs and was about to die. You, you talk about that in the book, and um, laying eggs, did they turn into baby octopuses? No, like like chickens, octopuses lay eggs whether the eggs are fertilized or not. But unlike chickens and unlike us, um, they have their babies at the end of their life, and they just get one shot at it. So a mother octopus, and octopuses have tragically short lives. They live fast and die young. A giant Pacific octopus may only live three to five years, and since they are born out of an egg the size of a grain of rice, they're one of the fastest-growing animals in the world. By the time you meet your giant Pacific octopus, when it's big enough to be living in an aquarium, that animal may already be one or two years old, and they only live three to five years. So I knew I was in for heartbreak. And when Octavia laid her eggs, a 100,000 of them, it was a bittersweet moment. I knew they were not going to hatch. She did not. But it was a sweet, lovely moment in that she was doing something that nature had intended. And she loved her eggs like a mother octopus will. And in the wild, what an octopus does is she goes into her lair, she lays these eggs, she actually braids them together almost like those onions that get braided that you see at sure. you know, nice restaurants and stuff. And, and she carefully has these strings of pearl-like eggs and she cements them to the wall of her lair. She stays in her lair for the rest of her life until, if her eggs are fertile, they hatch. And she'll use her last breaths to blow her hatching offspring out of the lair into the open ocean. And then she dies of old age. That's what would happen in the wild. Where at New England Aquarium, because there was no Mr. Octopus, we knew that these were not viable eggs, but she didn't. And so we got to watch her tending, cleaning, fluffing, and guarding her eggs. And she would not leave them. Even though there were no predators in the tank that would have hurt them, she felt that she had to stay there. But what that meant when she laid her eggs was we weren't going to have a chance to interact with her anymore because they don't want to interact with you. They're all about their eggs. So we could hand her food on the end of a grabber, but she was never going to come up to the top and see us again, we believed. But what happened was she sat on those eggs for six months, after which normally they would have hatched, seven months, eight months, nine months, much longer than an animal could have lived in the wild. Her eggs began to disintegrate. And old age came to Octavia, and she began to disintegrate, too. And one day I saw that she had a, a big swelling on one of her eyes. And Bill Murphy, who was the, the senior aquarist in her gallery, decided it would be most humane if she were moved behind the scenes and not subjected to all these people passing the front of her tank. So... He moved her, and this had never been done before at New England Aquarium. You cannot easily move a giant Pacific octopus. They are so tremendously strong. And at first he sent in 
his assistant to see if he could persuade Octavia to get into a bucket and move her to a smaller, darker, quieter, and calmer tank. Well, she was having none of it. But then Bill put his hand in, and Bill had seen her five days a week every day that she had lived at that aquarium. And remember I told you that they can not only feel you but taste you with all of their skin? The minute that his naked hand went in to the tank and touched her, she recognized him, and she let go, and she let him take her out of that tank and into another one. And it was just a few days later that I came in to say my goodbyes, and I really wondered if if she would remember me. Because, remember, they only lived three to five years, and although I had seen her every week, once a week, for about two years. She hadn't looked up at me for 10 months. And to an octopus, that's like not seeing someone for decades. And I wondered if she would, one, remember, and two, if she would even care. Well, this is um, a personal story. This is a story that... um... I mean, you've mourned the loss of this creature, haven't you? I sure have, because yeah. she did remember. And when I went in, we took the lid off the tank, and um, she looked up at us, me and Wilson, and she rose a few inches, and then hundreds of her suckers broke the surface, and she reached for us, and she tasted us, And she looked into our eyes. And this is an animal who is old and sick at the end of her life. She did not want to eat. She wasn't particularly curious at that point in her life. But she recognized us. And I can't know what was in her heart or three hearts. Octopuses have three hearts. But I do know that she went to a great deal of effort to see me and touch me and taste me one last time. And that is something that has stayed with me as a blessing for the rest of my life. How do you know that she recognized you? Was it just the touch? The fact that she bothered to rise up and look into my face and greet me. Um, You know, when you may have had old relatives that you've known and gone to see them on their deathbed, this was essentially the situation. And a lot of times, you're just feeling so lousy, you just can't get it together to even greet someone. It's a lot of effort. That's how she felt. And, you know, recently, um, I I reviewed this wonderful... um, book by Franz Duvall. It's called Mama's Last Hug, and it's named after a, a very well-known, um, there's a well-known video of this moment where a dying chimpanzee female saw one of her old human friends for the last time when she was on her deathbed. And she reached up and looked into his eyes and put her arms around his neck and gave a great big smile and he reached out and hugged her. And this was immediately recognizable to everyone what was going on. That's what I had and that's what Wilson had from an octopus. We're visiting with Cy Montgomery. Her book is The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonders of Consciousness. And of course, when you go down this road and start exploring the questions of what is consciousness, what is our consciousness compared to the consciousness of an octopus? How are we alike? How are we dissimilar? It's a fascinating question, and we're going to explore it a little bit more after another short break here on Constant Wonder. Uh, Cy, when we come back, I, I want to have you draw a comparison 
comparison between the relationship that you have had with uh, someone like Octavia, someone, did you hear me say someone, yes, an animal so like please. Octavia, yes. and, and then wild octopuses, because those encounters are going to be uh, significantly different after this break here on Constant Wonder. Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. We're visiting with Cy Montgomery. Her book is titled The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonders of Consciousness. And we're learning that the surprise of all of this is to see just how much consciousness an octopus has that resembles our own consciousness, all the way down to being able to relate across species. Uh, we, we talk about dolphins and elephants and chimps and uh, the like, and we say these are highly intelligent creatures. But just because that octopus has eight legs and a body riding atop its head, or uh, it's all confusing to us and it's hard to relate. Well, I, I'd like now, Sai, to, to go into this question of the wild octopus. You've had a lot of experience with creatures in both places, in the wild as well as in aquarium. And, and so I'm wondering if, uh, if there's a difference, if the, if the behavior of the octopus is noticeably different with, say, Octavia, whom you got to know, versus a stranger out in the sea? Well, um, the, the animals who I met in the wild, I learned to scuba dive in, in order to meet octopuses in the wild. So I, I can thank my captive friends for my learning, finally, in my late 50s, to learn how to scuba dive. Um, the, the animals who I met in the wild were different species, of octopuses. They were not giant Pacific octopuses. Um, but each one had a distinctive personality in the wild. And um, the, the most interaction that I, I had in the wild was I went to uh, French Polynesia. I also dove in, in, in Mexico, which was pretty fabulous. But in French Polynesia, I went with some of the top octopus biologists in the world, including Dr. David Scheel from Alaska and Dr. Jennifer Mather from um, Lethbridge University in Canada. And we were trying to find and observe octopuses in the wild, and it was extremely hard to find them in the first place. And most of the time, the octopuses were hiding. And day after day after day, first we weren't finding them at all, and then when you'd see them, all you'd see was some suckers under a rock. And I was thinking, like, gee, this is, this is not going to be all that entertaining for me. But then, one of our last days, I had this amazing experience there were two octopuses who were out and about, and one of them, this is a Pacific, uh, uh, Pacific Day octopus, also known as the Big Blue octopus, essentially decided to show us around the place and let us follow her. We knew it was a female because you can tell by looking at the third right arm. Let us follow her around. And she even reached out and touched me. And I was astonished because all the other ones I'd met had been so shy. But she was exceptionally bold. And I have heard other divers had similar experiences. Many divers spend their entire diving career without ever seeing an octopus. Why? Because they change color and shape and they can pour their boneless bodies down a tiny hole so you don't see them. But if you encounter a bold octopus, they will sometimes, it seems like they're intentionally showing you around the place. And I've even heard of octopuses that will take a diver by the hand and lead them. It's the most amazing thing. And you know, what is motivating them to do this? But, but some are shy, just like people, and some are bold. 
You know, sometimes I like to take a deep dive into what other people would consider to be minor technicalities. But a while ago, you said you can tell it's a female because of the third right arm. When you're looking at an octopus right in the eyes, I'm imagining that their right arms are to your left. Is this is this the way it works? Yes. Yes, okay. Okay. So the third correct. one would be the, the the third arm away from me, moving backward. Right, and this is hard to tell because the animal is so kind of gelatinous to start with, and so many moving parts. It's really hard to tell, <laughs> and um, a lot of times the males don't really want you to look at their third right arm. Um, they're kind of shy about it, and they okay. might keep it kind of balled up. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, okay, but... another th- technicality, <laughs> we haven't talked yet about the ink. And with squids and octopuses, the ink is a notorious thing. And uh, I'm always imagining that the animal feels threatened, and it's time to make that getaway, and yeah. suddenly you squirt out the ink, and you're gone. You're, it's a magic trick, practically. How does that work? Yeah, I I actually witnessed this with a different species of octopus at the aquarium. And I didn't write about this. So here's a bonus just for you um, that no one else really knows about. It was called a little red octopus. And they they live off the coast of California and Washington, Oregon. Um, And they're very venomous, by the way. So I was unwisely interacting with this little octopus and uh, she was stuck onto my hand and I thought you know her her beak is right next to my flesh and she's a very venomous animal and maybe I should ask her to leave and so I, I I didn't do anything to hurt her but I was encouraging her to leave and she dropped off my hand and just freaked out and she inked and what happened, she instantly turned color in less than a, a second. She turned a completely different color. She had been bright red, and then she turned a fawn color. The ink blot that she squirted out, it wasn't like um, a, a, a cloud, like the Batmobile leaves. <laughs> it was a blob. And the blob immediately grew legs that dripped down from the blob. So the blob looked like it was an octopus while the octopus itself turned invisible and no this you're making this stuff up at this point because i can't imagine that happening i i couldn't believe it and i certainly did not expect that okay you're calling it's a decoy yes it's exactly a decoy and there may be even more to the story um, I have read some interesting material that suggests that octopus ink, and by the way, there's there's over 200 different species of octopus, so the composition of the ink could be different from species to species. But I have read that in some species, the ink has a component that may be either hallucinogenic or narcotic, so that the prey animal behaves, I mean, the the prey or predator animal believes that it's already eaten and doesn't even need to eat the octopus. This this is just weird stuff that I I have read, but that it's that chemically complex that it acts like a decoy and a drug. Yeah, this is sophistication. This is amazing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Talk about superpowers. Yeah. Well, you know, if you had been in the water and had ingested any of that ink, then I'd know why you were seeing that the blob grew legs because it's hallucinogenic, (laughs) (laughs) right? Uh, We have to get to a very important point about these creatures, which you have talked at great length about octopuses both in the wild and more particularly in, in captivity that have had a relationship with you and you with with them, that there's a sociality. And this kind of is uh, in contrast to what I had expected. When I was growing up, I'd see all of those Jacques Cousteau specials about the open ocean. And if you see an octopus, it's a loner. It's out there all alone. You don't see schools, schools of squid perhaps, but the octopuses, 
when they're babies just hatching from their eggs and dispersing, is it true that the octopus is kind of a loner? Yes, yeah, that is a very good point. Now, you know, again, there's lots of different species, and there's we don't know all that much about any octopus species. They're just really hard to study because they're hard to find in the first place, and you can't exactly put a radio collar on them. But that amazed me as well. And when we think about intelligence in humans, what do we use our intelligence for? Well, everybody agrees we need our intelligence mostly to sort out our complex social lives. And we need our intelligence because we have these long lives and many different individuals to remember. Now, an octopus is exactly the opposite. They're generally solitary, and they're extraordinarily short-lived. So what is their intelligence for? What's it doing? And further, why would they want to be friends with us? So these were two questions that I kind of explored in the book. Um, I'm going to... uh, quote Dr. Jennifer Mather here, um, she says that their intelligence and our intelligence evolved from totally different situations. Theirs evolved because the minute they lost the ancestral shell that all mollusks, except for octopuses and, and, and squid, um, have, they became free to hunt but also also very vulnerable to predators. So they needed to be so smart that they could outwit many different kinds of predators and also outwit many different kinds of prey. But then the question remains, why would they want to be friends with me? And particularly when you think of, you know, even octopuses mating, there's there's a big danger that your dinner date is going to turn into a dinner date. I mean, when octopuses mate, they sometimes break out in cannibalism. So you're you're right. They they tend to be solitary, and even when mating, they may not be terribly friendly. But octopuses do share interests with humans, and that is that we both like to play. And so that's what I and other people who befriended octopuses had to offer to the octopus something interesting to do. So it's kind of the same thing about why you hang out with the friends that you hang out with. You have a shared interest. You know, this play thing is very important, but you put it a different way earlier. You just talked about boredom. We humans get bored, octopuses get bored, and then we resort to play. Right, right. Well, you know, we've talked about Octavia, you mentioned Athena, there are other octopuses of your acquaintance, and Kali, we never did hear what happened to Kali. Oh gosh, this was so heartbreaking. Oh man. She she was a beautiful young octopus, and we were in this very strange situation at the aquarium. We were rebuilding the giant ocean tank, which is the central pillar of the whole aquarium. And because of this tank, space was really short. And we had Octavia, who was the octopus who was on display, the biggest, most dramatic octopus. And then behind the scenes, we had little Kali growing up. Well, she was getting bigger and bigger, and she wanted a bigger tank. So one day, finally, they were able to find a tank big enough and secure enough to keep her in. The thing is, you have got to have a secure tank or the octopus gets out. Well, Bill found this terrific tank, and the guys who were helping to rebuild the giant ocean tank came up with a lid that they felt was octopus-proof. And they strapped the thing down with straps, and they put weights on top of it, and... She was so happy to be in her new tank. But there was a little, tiny opening 
through which some of the tubes that circulated the water into her tank had to escape. And the night we moved her into her beautiful new tank, she got out with tiny openings smaller than a tangerine and fell on, we believe she fell on the Vercon mat, a mat that's supposed to keep germs from spreading in the aquarium, and she died. Yeah, you know, um, it's so clear to me, Sai, that you are deeply, deeply invested in these creatures. And as we conclude our conversation, I could describe your interest as a research interest. I could consider it sort of a, an affectionate, emotional uh, connection that you're looking for. But there's certainly uh, a long uh, amount of time that you've spent thinking about these creatures. I want to spring away from the octopus and just talk to you a little bit as we close about the way we feel about the world around us, the big world of which the octopus is but a part. Are you or have you derived lessons from, are you deriving lessons from the, your, your interactions with this creature, the octopus, that tell us about the, the bigger world? Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And you know what it says to me? There is an ancient quote, okay? It's, it's from um, Thales of Miletus. And at first, it's, it seems to, to not make any sense or to be talking about polytheism or, or, or some, like, weird ancient thought. But I'm going to share the quote with you and tell you how these animals kind of decoded this for me. The quote is, the universe is alive and has fire in it and is full of gods. And to me, what this says is that our world is just incandescent with lives and souls and beings who love their lives like we love ours. And that this whole world is sacred and holy and worthy not just of our respect, but worthy of our awe and our compassion and our protection. And that is what knowing every animal I've ever met has shown me. But knowing someone as different from everyone else that I've known as an octopus just shows me that life, holy, beautiful, sacred life is all around us. And it makes me so much more in love with this sweet green world. Cy Montgomery, such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. An honor to learn about you and your work. And uh, thanks for being on Constant Wonder. 